Hi, I'm Sana. I'm one of the newly appointed rheumatology registrars. Hi, I'm Samir and I am a rheumatology ST6. Great. And this video, we're going to be talking to you all about the spondyloarthritides. So this is a umbrella term and it, it encompasses lots of different diseases, but the kind of main thing really about this group of, of diseases is that they are an inflammatory arthritis. They are seronegative. So you'd expect rheumatoid factor CCP antibodies to be negative, and they tend to affect the spine in one way or another. So the distinct kind of diseases within that umbrella term would include things like ankylosing spondylitis, psoriatic arthritis. So that would usually have some association with psoriasis, reactive arthritis. So that tends to be people who develop an arthritis after an infection. And then IBD related spondyloarthritis. Again, there's some debate about whether that's a, a distinct entity or not. And then included again within this umbrella of spondyloarthritis is sometimes the, the juvenile spondyloarthritis or the enthesitis related arthritis. But we're not really going to be talking about that in any more detail. But remember, key thing is affects the axial skeleton, usually associated also with enthesitis, which is inflammation of the tendons the tendons and ligaments when they attach to at the points at which they attach to bone. And also there's a strong association with HLA-B27. So if we move on to pathophysiology, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on this because there's a lot that's unknown, but a kind of key thing to think about is obviously as with lots of autoimmune diseases, there's genetic predisposition and usually there's some kind of environmental trigger. So whether it's infection or, or something else, but the kind of interesting thing about this particular disease is, like we said, association with HLA-B27. And also there tends to be some involvement in sort of T helper 17 cells and some evidence to suggest that they're activated by certain interleukins like IL-17 and IL-23, which is quite relevant when we think about how we manage these patients. So when you see a patient, usually the way that these type of patients might present would be, again, an inflammatory kind of back pain. So you'd expect pain to be worse with inactivity, worse in the morning with stiffness, usually in the axial spine, tends to get better with movement and at the end of the day. The key things to try and help you discern between the different subtypes would be thinking about the specifics. So a patient with angspond or ankylosing spondylitis would usually be a patient who's less than 40. There is a male predominance, so that's a three to one ratio. With all of these, there does seem to be ethnic predispositions. So Caucasians are more likely to have it than non-Caucasians, and particularly Afro-Caribbeans and Sub-Saharan Africans are less likely to have these diseases. I'm not sure why. But for Anxpond, as well as the inflammatory back pain, you also have, usually patients have enthesitis, like we discussed, and tend to be quite fatigued as well. Very rarely you might get peripheral large joint inflammatory involvement, but there is definitely predominance of, of axial, axial spine. So, so going into that as well, so it's it's more specifically located generally around the sacroiliac joints. So they get a, a symmetrical, in ankylosing spondylitis, a symmetrical sacroiliitis. Not always, but most of the time it's a symmetrical sacroiliitis and that that can manifest as like you said inflammatory back pain so just going over it again so pain that's better with movement significant stiffness in the morning nocturnal symptoms and it's generally 
the sort of second half of the night. So not, not the first half of the night. So if someone's got back pain in the first half of the night, I mean, it could still be significant because nocturnal pain is not normal, but it could be related to a busy day or whatever. Whereas if it's in the second half of the night, it's that period of inactivity. So just lying down, sitting still, it stiffens up everything and makes pain worse. Sacroiliitis can also present as alternating buttock pain. So that's another common sort of symptom that people would get. Uh, and then you obviously have to rule out other things, you know, red flag features for, for back pain. Mm-hmm. But they can present, um, which I'll, I'm sure you're going to go into, with things like constitutional symptoms, that kind of stuff. But going into the enthesitis as well, it would normally be things like an Achilles tendonitis, which is pretty common and something to look out for on exam, or things like a tennis elbow, or, or you know, if they're getting recurrent episodes of enthesitis in combination with inflammatory back pain, then I'd be, I'd be leaning towards that. Great. Thank you very much. So the other kind of, so we've kind of touched on angst bond, but if we talk about psoriatic arthritis, the kind of key, I think, distinguishing things that might make you think this is psoriatic arthritis would be a patient who has psoriasis. And in fact, up to sort of one in five patients who have psoriasis end up having psoriatic arthritis. Uh, sort of male, female predominances, prevalence is equal, but another kind of key thing with psoriatic arthritis would be a dactylitis, which I don't think you would expect to see in any of the other spondyloarthritis. You can you can kind of get them in oh, some okay. some of the other spondyloarthritis, but um, again, it, it very much depends. Psoriatic arthritis is if you're sitting if you're seeing peripheral joint involvement and there's different types of psoriatic arthritis, then with a dactylitis, then you'd be more pointing towards psoriatic arthritis. You don't always have to have psoriasis as well sometimes it can psoriatic arthritis can predate psoriasis or if you have a family history so if your your mother your father a first degree relative has psoriasis and you've got what looks like a psoriatic arthritis the lack of psoriasis in yourself is not it an excluding factor yeah and there's lots of different sort of subtypes or presentations for psoriatic arthritis which we're not really going to go into today but they kind of would include a subtype that looks very much like rheumatoid arthritis, the sort of classic but very rare arthritis mutilans, which you can probably remember from pictures of from medical school. And then, yeah, the polydactylitis, so sort of sausage fingers in, in several places or sort of large, large joint involvement or sort of spinal sort of axial predominance. So less, less peripheral signs. Um, the other thing I would mention with, with psoriatic arthritis or some of these other ones, that they can affect your DIPJs as well. Whereas classically in our earlier videos, we spoke about that rheumatoid arthritis affects more your proximal joints, your PIPJs, your, your MCPJs. Psoriasis can affect pretty much anywhere, but classically in the hand, if you see any DIPJ involvement with inflammatory arthritis or first CMCJ involvement, then you're starting to think, could this be more of a spa psoriatic arthritis type picture in the right context? Yeah, absolutely. Reactive arthritis tends to use a presentation. The things that make you think about it would be so a, a, a previous recent infection. So usually it would be like diarrhea or it can be urethritis, for example. And there are certain pathogens that are quite classic to be associated with it. And then the kind of things that you might see a presentation would usually quite typically be, I think it's fair to say, a, an oligoarthritis. And then you may have yeah, anthocytis and then for example, conjunctivitis, you may also have skin, so skin disease. And the kind of classic one that you hear about at med school would be the, the kind of, uh, at the soles of the feet, keratoderma blenorajica, which I've never seen before, to be honest. 
but yeah, confusingly that can also look similar to palmer plantar pustulosis which you can get in um, psoriatic arthritis so it's, you can kind of see these are all kind of connected uh, the, yeah. the interesting thing to note for, for the infections is that it doesn't happen right at the onset of infection it happens a little while after so if it happens at the onset of infection it's most likely going to be related so sometimes you can get you know like a, a viral arthritis or a gonococcal arthritis or something whereas if it happens a few weeks after it's more of an immune reaction and that's what's causing the, uh, the arthritis yeah. so that, that's an important distinction yeah absolutely thanks Amir. so um and then ibd so you might see sort of symptoms that you would also associate with ibd so you might have the sort of aphthous dermatitis, for example, uveitis, which you can see also with angspond, hemodosum, and then pyodermic gangrenosum as well. So when you're assessing someone with who you think might have this, again, I think it's important to try and decipher where most of the disease is. So is it axial or is it peripheral or is it both? Do they have these associated symptoms of emphysitis, any eye symptoms? Um, any skin disease, et cetera. What family history do they have? Do they have a family history of, psoriasis, of psoriasis, for example? Have they had any recent infections or triggers? And do they have any bowel symptoms? I think those are really important to screen for. And then also trying to always think, you know, could this be rheumatoid or could this be, you know, something else? Could this be a crystal arthropathy as, as a differential always? And then when you're actually assessing the patient in clinic, there are a couple of tests that, you would want to do depending on which of the subtypes you're thinking about. So for angspond, Schober's test is really good thing to do, and it checks the sort of how flexible the lumbar spine is. You can also assess the distance between the occiput and the wall, and obviously if you have a, a large distance, then that might signify quite advanced disease. It's important to to examine specifically for anthocytis. And then if you think someone has got, for example, ankylosing spondylitis, it would be important to look for any extra articular manifestations or complications. So remember, patients with angspond have increased risk of apical fibrosis and also cardiac disease, so aortic regurgitation, for example. Or if you think someone's got psoriasis, examine their skin thoroughly and also check their nails for any nail dystrophy. And if you're concerned about IBD, then obviously examine their abdomen. I would say for, for the psoriatic arthritis, looking at the nails, so looking at the pitting, which is quite subtle. Nail dystrophy is obviously a bit more obvious, things like anaphylaxis and that kind of stuff, but nail pitting can sometimes be a bit more subtle. And then looking for psoriasis, so psoriasis isn't always obvious. Sometimes it's hidden, so it could be, you know, little plaques behind there on their elbows. So you've got to really roll up their sleeve. Sometimes it's in the ear, on the scalp, which people may or may not realise in the belly button, which again, people may or may not realize, or it could be somewhere a bit more sensitive where patients don't actively tell you. So it could be in the genital area and they don't know what it is. And it could be in the natal cleft, which is another another place for hidden psoriasis. So the, these are important things to mention. Obviously you don't examine everyone and, uh, unless they have a problem there or, or whatnot, but it, it, is, it is important to try and signify that to the patient. Yeah, absolutely. Especially if they're like embarrassed about, about mm. it and don't bring it up. So moving on to exam to investigations. So I think it's sensible to say that you would do a lot of this tests that we've discussed in our rheumatoid arthritis video, because you at the at presentation, you might not be sure if it's a seropositive or seronegative inflammatory disease, but definitely checking full blood count. Again, these patients can be anemia and anemic, and it can be anemia of chronic disease. 
they might have elevated white cell count. Um, they may have an elevated CRP or ESR, but again, it could be normal. And again, you'd expect these patients to be seronegative as we've discussed. HLA testing, HLA-B27 testing, I don't know. I think it depends. 